be going to Romans chapter 8, continuing our sermon series through the book of Romans. We have come to message number 40 in this series, entitled, God is for us. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written... For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in verses 26 to 30... Paul added another work of the Spirit, particularly that of the intercession of the Spirit for the saints. We've learned that the adopted sons and daughters of God have the Spirit dwelling in them, and they have received or or have the promise of resurrection by the Spirit, according to verse 11. They mortify the deeds of the body by the Spirit in verse 13. The Spirit of adoption uh, causes us to cry, Abba, Father, according to verse 15. And also the Spirit bears witness within us that we are the children of God in verse number 16. And so here Paul said that the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. Our weakness that we do not understand or comprehend God's will in all things. So we don't know, Paul says, what we should pray for as we ought. But he tells us that the Spirit Himself prays for us. And we cannot understand or know His prayer. These are groanings that, are, that can't be uttered or, or that are without words or what have you. We can't understand or know the Spirit's prayers within us, but we are assured that they are always according to God's will. And while there are many aspects of God's will that we don't know, There are many aspects of God's will we simply cannot know. But Paul refers to what we can know. What we can know of God's will. We can know of God's will as it contributes to the assurance that believers have of future glory. Here as being denoted of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, we know that that is God's will. That all things then... All things are working together. Now, Paul most recently in this letter, as we've been looking on it, he's been focusing on the suffering of this present time. And it isn't, Paul's not saying that we might experience some suffering, 
but rather that suffering is a part of the joint heirship with Christ. It is a part of being conformed to His image. And Paul's comfort that he gives to us and assurance that he gives to us is that all of these things are connected and all of these things work together for good according to God's purpose. So those who are in Christ have been predestinated, he tells us, to be in Christ because they were foreknown by God, they were called by God, they were justified by God, and glorified by God. It's hard to imagine how Paul could make the assurance of salvation to be any stronger than what he has in these last few chapters. And so now we've come to the ending of chapter 8. And we have here a conclusion for this chapter in these verses. We also have a conclusion for this section of the letter that began in chapter 5 and has come all the way forward to the end of chapter number 8. Paul began in chapter 5, you will recall, by stating that being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And he showed that believers in Jesus have been reconciled to God through Christ's death. And so there is now no condemnation for all who are in Christ. And Paul summarizes our legal status as being declared righteous with none to condemn us in this end of chapter 8. Of course, the legal concern is only one aspect of our security. And so Paul ends also on another note. He has focused on the present life of a Christian in this section, and he has also spoken to our personal experience. So he ends on the love of God and Christ that we have. A believer in Jesus Christ cannot be condemned and cannot be separated from God's love. That's the way that he ends this great chapter and section in this letter. So we want to look at Paul's summary conclusion in two parts, verses 31 to 34, where Paul shows how we are justified with no condemnation. And in verses 35 to 39, how that we are loved with no separation. So we want to begin in verse 31 in this first part where Paul shows us that this justification excludes any possibility of future condemnation. Verse number 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now Paul uses in this conclusion, he uses a series of rhetorical questions and statements to close out this section. These things that he mentions here, what shall we then say to these things? These things refers to all of the things that Paul has been discussing, particularly since chapter 5. In other words, not just in the most recent context, but really all the way through this section, chapters 5 to 8. Paul has explained why we rejoice in the hope of future glory, despite numerous troubles, tribulations, numerous threats to that justification and that future glory. Now, Paul's argument has not been that believers face no difficulties, but that they indeed face difficulties. They face difficulties on different fronts, 
and that all these difficulties are a part of this present life as sons of God. As sons of God who are awaiting full adoption, who are awaiting this full inheritance that this suffering is a part of this present life of waiting. Now beyond this, Paul has explained that God is working in and through it all to bring all of His children into conformity to Jesus Christ. That is the inherited glory that Paul began speaking about in chapter number 5. So Paul has given us throughout all these things that he mentions, Paul has shown how that God is working in and through them all to bring us to that glory. Now notice here in verse 31, the way that Paul summarizes all that work of God, Christ, and the Spirit that he's been talking about for four chapters. And here it is in verse 31. If God be for us. It's the way that Paul summarizes all of these things that he's been talking about. God is for us. Speaking about, obviously, those who believe. When Paul says that God is for us, he means that God is on our side. He is working for our good. Now, that doesn't mean that God is going to give us anything and everything that we want or ask for. But it means that God always works according to His purpose, that purpose which, by the way, existed before the earth was ever even created, much less we existed. And it means that through all the tribulations of this present life, God is working to bring us to glorification. Again, that's the point of God's will that we know, that we understand, and that we can be assured of. That all those who believe in Jesus Christ are going to be brought into full future glorification. That's something we certainly know about God's will. And we're given assurance here that God is for us. Meaning that in all of these things that take place, in all of the actions and, and things that happen to us and, and what have you, that God is working to bring us to future glorification and that He will succeed. That's what we are assured of. God is for us. And you notice that He gives the contrasting question. If God be for us then, if all these things be true and God is for us, He says, who can be against us? Now, of course, Paul doesn't mean that nothing or no one will oppose us because he's obviously been telling us quite different than that through these last four chapters in particular. We have many things and many beings that oppose us in many different ways. We have many experiences of tribulation and persecution and suffering and affliction and all of that. But what Paul means is that there is none there's no one, no being, and there's no thing that can successfully oppose us. There is none that can oppose us to overcome who God is for us. That's what Paul is saying. It is God who is for us. 
There is none who can oppose us. In other words, they would have to overthrow God in order to successfully stand against us. Verse 32, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Paul gives an explanation of God being for us here in terms of God giving over His Son. In other words, I believe that Paul is referring to this supreme act. In other words, how could God demonstrate any more fully that He is for us? He is for those who believe. He is for His children. How could He demonstrate that any more fully than delivering up, giving over, handing over His Son to crucifixion? How could He demonstrate that any more fully? Now, Paul ended chapter 4 speaking of Jesus who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. It's the same word for delivered that is used there as what he uses here. He didn't spare. He didn't refuse. He didn't neglect. Being handed over, being delivered, being surrendered, referring to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, has brought to us, as Paul has shown throughout chapters 5-8, to has brought to us justification being declared righteous before God, has brought to us reconciliation, even though that we were at enmity with God, has brought to us adoption, even though we were naturally born aliens to the family of God, has brought to us joint heirship with Jesus Christ, has brought to us glorification. And all of these things have been purchased and secured through the death of Jesus Christ. He delivered Him up. Not only did He deliver Him up, He delivered Him up for us all. So Paul's argument is that if God has done all this to give believers all of this, how could that fail to be fulfilled? How how could that fail to come to pass? In other words... If we think about the perspective when Paul is writing, God has already handed over His Son. He's already been put to death. He's already raised Him up again. He's already ascended to the right hand where He is presently. Those things have already taken place according to God's purpose. And if all of that has happened from before the foundation of the world through the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, then how could the rest of it fail to be fulfilled? How could God fail to glorify and to give us the inheritance for which He gave His Son to die in order to purchase? How could God fail to do that? And again, we notice of how Paul speaks here. Delivering Him up for us all. He's speaking in terms of God's children. All who believe. All who are foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, glorified, all of those children. He says He will freely give us all things. Referring to that inheritance. Referring to that heirship. How could that fail to come to pass if God has already done all of this according to His purposes? 
Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So Paul continues, and throughout this first part that we're looking at, he uses a number of legal associated terms, justification, condemnation, being handed over, um, and, and so on. He's used a number of these legal terms, and he uses another one here. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, indicating an accusation, indicating a charge that might be given as a legal, char- legal charge in a, in a court of law, an accusation against one that would in some way affect the sentence against them. So in this case, it would be an accusation against that justification. That's what Paul's asking us to think about. Who is it that can successfully make an accusation against any of God's children who have been justified that would bring them once again into condemnation after they've been delivered from it. Who could do that? Paul also adds another term in this verse for for believers, and that term is elect. God's elect. First time he has used used it here in the book of Romans. He only uses it uh, one of the times. He uses some related words. The word for elect is an adjective, and it means picked out or chosen. The word is only used in a spiritual or a religious sense in the New Testament as being chosen by God. It's only ever used in the New Testament, to this particular word, to refer to being chosen by God. It's used of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 23 and verse 35, which is not uncommon language in the Old Testament to speak of the Messiah as God's chosen. It's used of the holy angels in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. And then it's also used of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Here in Romans 8.33, it's used in Colossians 3.12. Uh, Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 10. And we find that this particular word, when it is used in connection with people, those believers in Jesus Christ, it is very often used in association with a group of words. A group of words being foreknowledge, predestination, and calling in particular. We often find those words being used together or in very close proximity. Now the verb which is the verb form of this word, is used in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 4. Here's verses 4 and 5 there in Ephesians 1. According as He hath chosen, and there's, there's that word, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. And the verb form of the word that is used there in Ephesians 1-4 means to pick out or to choose. So here we, we have the adjective means those that have been picked out or chosen. And there that, that verb means to pick out or to choose. Elect is the term that Paul adds here to the various descriptive terms that he has used 
throughout this section to refer to believers. For example, he has referred to them as justified. He's referred to them as in Christ. He's referred to them as joined to Christ. He's referred to them as having the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them. He's referred to them as adopted children of God. He's referred to them as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And especially in the most recent verses we've looked at, He's referred to them as foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. The point is, is that as Paul has progressed throughout this section, he has used a number of different terms to speak of the same group of people. Believers in Jesus Christ who have been justified by faith, whether they be Jews or whether they be Gentiles. And when, when he speaks this way, and he uses these various terms to describe believers, it's not just another way to speak of believers. But Paul is using this term at such a time as this as another way to describe believers that strengthens our assurance. You have been foreknown and chosen by God is what Paul is communicating through these last verses in chapter number 8. Again, if God be for us, who can be against us? And here he's saying, who can make an accusation against any of God's chosen ones? Now in the answer, Paul says, it is God that justifieth. And in other words, we could read it this way, since it is God who justifies, how can anyone successfully charge any of God's chosen ones. If God has justified those He has picked out for Himself, how could anyone undo or overcome that with an accusation leading to their condemnation? Obviously, this expects the negative answer. They cannot. There is none who can do such a thing. Verse 34, who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So Paul now is expanding on that previous verse and the answer, the question that he raised and the answer that he gave. Who, he's saying, could possibly condemn God's elect since it is Christ who has died for them. Now Paul is going beyond in this verse, beyond just the death of Christ. He also said that He died, but also that He rose again for the justification of God's elect. Furthermore, Paul alludes to the fact that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. Now, in this allusion, Paul is obviously making reference to Psalm 110 and verse number 1 which speaks of the session at God's right hand that His Messiah serves before returning to this earth to set up His kingdom. That is where Jesus is presently. That's where Jesus was when Paul, as Paul was writing these very words. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. 
And there He will be, even as Peter uh, preached there in Acts chapter number 3, there He will be until the time for the restitution of all things, until the time of His return when He comes to this earth to set up His kingdom. Being at God's right hand, in other words, Jesus' presence at God's right hand, means that He has successfully completed His work. He has accomplished what He came to the earth the first time to accomplish. But it also means that Jesus being at the right hand of God, that He is acting as the ever-living intercessor and advocate for His people as our great high priest and the only priest that comes between us and God the Father. He intercedes, we are told, continually. He's interceding for us continually at the right hand of God. What, what is this advocacy that Jesus Christ is engaged in at the right hand of God? He's interceding continually that the righteous verdict is applied to all of those who trust in Him. He is assuring that at the right hand of God the Father. And that's why Jesus says, who is He to condemn? Who's He to condemn? The sacrifice is there present. The atonement for the sins of God's people is there present. The righteousness of God's people is at the right hand of God the Father, continually assuring that that justification is applied to all those that trust in Him. So in other words, Paul has framed this in such a way that for someone to condemn, there would have to be someone who could step between God and Christ and to disrupt our justification and bring us back into condemnation. Who can do that? And obviously, again, the negative answer is expected. There is none who can do that. There is no one who can do that. Then we come to the next part, beginning with verse 35, where Paul then moves to speak of how that we are loved by God with no separation. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now Paul begins this second part of his summary focusing on the love of God in Christ. Paul had stated back in chapter 5 how that God's love for us is shown, it is demonstrated, it is displayed through the death of Jesus Christ. And now, Paul is asking this question, who can separate us from such love as that? Paul lists here seven forms of suffering that would seem to threaten such a separation, which would seem to be an indication that we have been separated from God's love. I don't believe that Paul intends here to give us any sort of an exhaustive list, that it's exactly these seven things. In fact, as you 
consider it, you realize that he's using very general terms um, to describe these various aspects of sufferings. It's a representative sort of list. It, it, it means to show us the full array of the sufferings that we undergo in this present time, tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril. And then he ends with the sword. Even the sword. The sword obviously standing for death. Death or execution. So Paul is saying, as we undergo the sufferings of this present time, all the way from tribulation to famine to nakedness to peril, he says, even to the sword, even if the sufferings of this present time end in death, and they will one way or another, except that we are alive and remain at the return of Jesus Christ. When these end in death, they do not separate us from the love of God. Verse number 36, As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now Paul here quotes from Psalm 44 and verse number 22. When you look at Psalm 44, it, you see that it is a prayer from the faithful among Israel who are praying and crying out for the restoration of Israel according to the promises that God has given. And so the psalmist in Psalm 44 laments the sufferings of Israel due to, he mentions various things, being cast off from God, being shamed before the nations, losing at the hands of their enemies, being spoiled by their enemies, being scattered um, from off their land, being handed over like sheep for meat. But yet in Psalm 44, we see that it is the faithful who have kept God's covenant. It is the faithful who did not lose their faith in Him, nor did they put their trust in any other, even though they were seeing these kinds of sufferings. And so we have the statement in verse 22, where the psalmist says that it's for God's sake that they're killed all the day long and are as sheep for the slaughter. In other words, even in their death, they are not losing faith in God or putting their trust in another. Now this association with the plight of Israel at such a time does set up the direction that Paul is going to go in chapters 9-11. to But here in particular, it reinforces Paul's point about the suffering of the righteous in this present time. As he looks back to those righteous and faithful ones who were suffering under the times of Israel's judgment. What is Paul's point? Paul's point is that that suffering does not nullify God's covenant promises. It does not separate them from His love. It does not nullify the believer's hope in future inheritance. Verse 37, Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Rather than any of these things, Paul's been talking about, rather than any of these things separating us from Christ's love, he says, we are more than conquerors. A term that means to gain decisive victory. We overcome and we gain victory over all things that oppose us in this present life. 
And that would also include our own sin, as we have seen so well in these chapters leading up to chapter 8. And it is precisely through Christ's love that we overcome in all of these things. Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. So Paul's ending this section with a testimony of personal experience of being persuaded. He is fully persuaded of the truth. He has experienced what he is talking about. And he's presenting us another list. And this list uses contrasting pairs that sort of go toward the extremes, life and death. And he intends by this list to capture all possibilities. In other words, again, he's speaking in somewhat general terms. I believe that he's trying to cover the full scope. Life or death. In other words, he's saying whether we live or whether we die. He's not talking about any particular type of death, but simply whether we live or whether we die. Whether we live and continue to undergo the sufferings of this present time or whether the sufferings of this present time include our death in this mortal life. Whether we live or die. Angels, principalities, powers refers to the immaterial or to the spirit realm of beings such as angels and demons and um, things that exist about us. He refers to the present and to the future. Present distresses or tribulations, even future tribulations that might be much worse than what we have seen to to this point in the present. He continues this list in verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Height and depth um, most naturally refers to things above or things below. I believe that it could be a, a, a specific spiritual reference again um, to the, the spiritual immaterial realm, but more, more likely, I believe that Paul is trying to capture the entire created universe. And he finishes this by saying any other creature or any other created thing, any other creation. In other words, there's nothing in all creation, whether visible or invisible, that can separate us from the love of Christ. And that's where Paul concludes that nothing, and he means nothing whatsoever, can separate us from God's love that is in Christ Jesus. He goes from no condemnation to no separation. Now again, I just repeat that it's hard to imagine how that Paul could say any more clearly that all who believe in Jesus Christ are secure in the promise of salvation, that they will inherit eternal life. And his ending note covers every possibility that could bring us into condemnation or separation from Christ, essentially saying it cannot happen. So for everyone, whether Jews or Gentiles, the gospel presents this good news in Christ Jesus. God sent His Son into the world to die for sins, and everyone who believes in Him has peace with God has assurance of eternal life and God's love that no person, place, or thing 
can remove from them.